Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we launch a two-part series on storytelling, its importance to our culture, and how we tell and deliver stories in the 21st century. We start with Beth Novak, an associate professor of media arts and studies at Ohio University. Her specialty is non-traditional storytelling. She takes us into the future of how new technology will reshape the way we tell and experience stories. For example, she talks about virtual reality, animation, theme parks, and gaming as interesting non-traditional storytelling mechanisms. Beth, I know one of your areas of study is uh, listed as non-traditional storytelling. I think anybody looking at your bio would go, what is that? Uh, can, can you give us a, a quick definition that we can work from? Well, it's an interesting thing because it has changed fairly drastically even over the last 10 years when that bio was probably written. Um, Originally, non-traditional story was hitting on uh, new technologies and the way that new technologies could create immersive stories. And so um, it, it started as video games where we were giving control to the user. And how do you create an immersive, deep story when the user has some sort of control? And historically, video games have not done story well, although there are plenty now examples that do. Um, and now we've moved into other realms like uh, virtual reality. And how can we tell a story in virtual reality when the user can walk away or look away or choose um, different portions of the story to emphasize? Same with 360 video. And I'm really interested also in the idea of immersive worlds that don't always include a true story, but create an environment that makes the user feel something. So let me go back and use some traditional terms. Uh, what I'm hearing you say is that non-traditional storytelling involves both fiction mm -hmm. and nonfiction. Very uh, true. To, to use traditional terms. Is that right? That's right. Um, and we think about world building as being fiction. And, and if you think about um, 
traditionally world building has been done quite a bit in sci-fi and fantasy. So if you look at like Lord of the Rings and the world building that goes into that, this idea of creating an environment that the viewer believes in. Um, But now we're seeing worlds be built that could be fictional or in some cases nonfiction. If you look at a lot of virtual reality and what's happening Um, being able to educate people about social issues, being able to educate people about environmental issues. They are building worlds that exist. Even even medicine. Even medicine, correct, right? So you can build a a reality that is based on reality, but that you have control over in order to deliver a message. So would that be your definition, control over a world to deliver a message? I would say the the creation of a mediated world to deliver a message. Define that. Well, the idea that we are creating the media, we are we are creating everything in that world. It's not this reality that we sit in in this room. Although we could create this room in virtual reality and then deliver a story in it that is not happening concurrently in our reality. One used to be able to, and still can, but one used to be able to sit in a chair, read a book, and be taken to a different place. Yes. Or back in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, one could sit before a radio console, listen to a story, and be taken to a different place. How is what you're talking about different than that. So both of these things that you mentioned um, base the story around um, if you if you read what Aristotle said about story, a story has to have a beginning, middle, and end. Um, if you think about what a story has in current times, if if you were to ask my students, for example, what do you need to create a story? They would say characters, setting, an inciting incident, you know, things have to happen. Um, But you can also have thematic worlds that create emotion just like a story, but that they don't have a beginning, middle, end. Or maybe you're the character. So we can put you into an environment in which things can happen around you that are not inclusive of a story. So they're not about a character or a setting necessarily or incidents happening to you. Um, So, for example... In a virtual reality experience, I could make you feel as if um, as if you have dementia and get you to understand what that would be like for a patient. That's not a story necessarily. It's a feeling or it's a world that we're creating. Um, so in that way, it's kind of different from the media that you might have experienced before where we're delivering a traditional story with a beginning, middle, and end and an inciting incident and events happen and the hero wins the day. Um, this experience isn't about a beginning, middle, and end necessarily. It's just about being in an environment that might deliver a message or might deliver an emotion or something like that. When I read a book or I listened to radio, something Mm non-visual, my mind and imagination created place. Mm -hmm. It it created what it looked like. when I play a video game or I uh, am in an immersive environment, the place is created for me, but I'm creating the plot. 
Right. It, it, it's it's a totally different way of approaching story. You can also think about, um, you know, some of my colleagues are doing work in 360 video. So 360 video would be as if you are watching, let's say you're watching a film, but you as the user can turn around in 360 degrees. So you can turn around 180 degrees and look at what's behind you. This is a really difficult thing to think about story-wise because when you traditionally play a video game or watch a movie, you sit and you face a screen and that's what you see. Um, but now giving me the ability to look behind me, how do, how do I as the producer control the story? Do I need to? Do I, do I create something that allows someone to choose um, what they want to see, when they want to see it, who they want to follow? Um, it could create a whole new world of deep storytelling. Deep storytelling reminds me of deep state. <laughs> we'll get to that in, that in, a, in, in, in a moment. But but it, it seems to me if I if I'm in an experience and I can look 360 and I can look all around while characters are speaking either to each other or to me, that might change plot. Plot, by uh, it, it has diversions, but plot is generally linear. Yes. It goes from A to B to C to get you to D. If I'm not paying any attention and I miss B, am, am I going to miss the plot? Right. The only thing I can compare this to is, you know, my middle school experience with Choose Your Own Adventure books. Okay. Um, so, you know, for years they've been writing these books where you read the introduction and then you get to a decision point. And you as the reader have to decide, am I going to turn to cha- turn to page 10? Am I going to turn to page 15 based off of my decision? And so you end up with what's called a branching narrative. A branching narrative means that you have been given some choice to follow one branch of this tree that makes your experience different every time. So there is a lot of choice, but also a lot of potential to tell stories in a way that give the user some sense of control, which is a really new and exciting thing, but hasn't really been done well yet. You can also think about this, uh, another thing that I study in immersion, an immersive story is theme parks, because before VR, um, theme parks were really the place to go for immersive environments. And you as um, the visitor have a choice of where you're going to go and what you're going to do within that story. They are providing a world and you are creating the story, um, which is an exciting potential. So let's go back to PBS just for a moment. Yes. And Downton Abbey. Yes. uh, Extremely popular PBS series. Sometimes the dialogue was, um, to me, uh, a bit stodgy mm-hmm. or slow moving. So what you're telling me is, if this was an immersive experience instead of watching it on my two-dimensional television, that I could look around, I could look at the uh, furnishings in in this mansion that that intrigued me for their antique value, or I could, if I was into clothing, I could look at the costumes. I could 
I could look at so many different things. You could follow the dog. You could imagine what what does this dog do every day? But but in reality, <laughs> right. you could think about the fact that you might have a fa- favorite character. So you have mm-hmm. lady, in this example, you have Lady Mary and Lady Edith. Right. Um, and let's say that um, you are much more interested in what's happening in Lady Edith's storyline. Uh, you could choose to follow her versus being told that now it's time to follow Mary. Wow. Yeah. But you also have to think about from a producer standpoint, from a director's standpoint, from an actor's standpoint, that's a lot of content to generate to think about being able to give so many paths to the audience. But, but going to your example of um, the uh, theme park, they really give you the tools. Is that the same with an immersive experience through VR or whatever? You're given the right, tools. Right, right. You're given the tools, and then you have to make some choices. And, and is that what you defined as deep story? What What is – that's a term that I'm sure has a meaning. Deep story is more about creating emotion in the audience. So you can think of traditional media. You could think of films that have created a deep story within you. Um, And actually, it might be different for each audience member. So um, one of my favorite films is Jaws, and it creates deep emotion for me. Um, My husband does not like the film Jaws. It does not create deep emotion for him. But it's about evoking emotion. Um, You can see it in traditional media, but the potential of these new media forms to create emotion is such a strong thing. Um, because you almost feel like you're a participant versus being a passive viewer. I'm thinking of Disney. Yes, of course. <laughs> and, and, and I'm thinking of It's a Small World, and that certainly <laughs> created an immediate emotion yes, with me. I people. hated it from the, from the get-go, which probably was not its intent. Uh, but, but theme parks are – being challenged, I assume, mm-hmm. uh, in their non-traditional storytelling by the advent of VR, yes. where people in their own homes and and uh, soon it'll be commonplace, if not already, uh, be able to take these journeys. When I just taught a class um, in this past fall on uh, VR criticism. And we looked at a lot of virtual reality and, and we were critical of it. We talked about some of the social impact and, and one of the things we talked about is your ability in virtual reality to visit historic sites in virtual reality. So you don't actually have to go to them. And in some way, there's a potential for good that, um, you know, we're losing a lot of our historic sites to people walking around them, right? Their, their um, environmental impact. So the ability to preserve these sites by visiting them. But the other side of it is what are you missing out on just sitting in your house and and visiting the pyramids without going to them? Um, The example for theme parks is an interesting one. There are amusement parks. And the difference between an amusement park and a theme park is, of course, theme or story. Um, So an amusement park here where we are in Ohio, we have two major amusement parks, um, Kings Island and Cedar Point. Lots of roller coasters. And you're seeing some amusement parks add VR to their roller coasters. 
So you get on a roller coaster and you put on a VR headset. This is just a um, recipe for motion sickness, right? Yeah, right. And you're seeing something happening. So, for example, there's one, I believe, that's at the Six Flags where it's emulating that you are in a jet fighter and you have a trigger and you're able to um, fight the aliens, I think, in this particular one. Um, And it follows the path of the roller coaster. So your body feels as if it's moving. Your eyes um, emulate that same movement and you're able to have some interactivity. These tend to um, not create deep story. They just tend to feel like little one-offs of them trying to incorporate new technology. Um, But uh, you mentioned Disney earlier and, and um, Small World, which Walt Disney designed for the 1964 World's right. Fair, which has right. been around forever Ever. and iconic. But the new rides that they are producing, and they're, I think they're being very careful about the addition of new technology, making sure that things don't break down, making sure that you're not making your audience sick, things like that. But they have a new immersive environment, or newer, I should say, inver- immersive environment at Disney's Animal Kingdom uh, called Pandora. Um, it's based off of the movie Avatar, and they've recreated this world. It's quite beautiful. You you do not need to be a fan of the film or the four additional films that are coming out in the. Wow. Uh, yes, um, it's it's a beautiful area, and they have an attraction called uh, Flight of Passage, and in the movie Avatar, there are these creatures um, that are called banshees, and they almost look like a dragon, but they don't breathe fire, so they're a flying um, animal, and. On this attraction, you ride on the back of one, and you really – I just had a group of students there, and they came off saying, I now know how it feels to fly. After after riding a ride at a theme park, I feel like I know how to fly. So the power of that, the ability to make your user feel so excited and so happy, um, it's, it's just the potential is amazing. You were talking about think parts, but as you did, it, it prompted me to, you know, we're exploring as others how to use VR in news mm-hmm. and in news delivery. And it, certainly it can't be done on a routine fire story or a cop chase mm-hmm. or, or something like that necessarily. But people – seem to want to know how it feels perhaps to be in a hurricane or what it might feel like or sound like to be on a patrol in Afghanistan. Now, the technology is there to Mm -hmm. produce these sensations, but we're having ethical questions in news because you have to make choices to create the environment for someone to have that experience. And are those choices appropriate? Are those choices true? Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you have ethical questions throughout this genre? I do, for sure. And and in fact, I just spent the last semester talking to students about it, which was really interesting. Um, We think about kind of this generation of high school students as as being um, early adopters and as being um, digital natives. So they have grown up with a a true comfort level in digital technology, but they also have concerns um, about legalities, about social impact. And what you're saying is exactly right as... um, 
what we want from our news providers is what we hope for is all the facts so that we can make decisions. And VR, ultimately, you will be making decisions as the producer about what they need to see. And that could be troubling. Uh, Additionally, I think creating a truly immersive environment, there is a responsibility to make sure that you are protecting the user. Um, You can make some really realistic scenes. Would you want to live through 9-11? You could do that in in VR. I don't know that that's a responsible thing to do. Right. Um, So as producers, we have some responsibility. Um, There's lots of VR being used in training, and you're seeing some of those training – pieces being ported over for public consumption. So, for example, the military uses VR quite a bit for training. It's an excellent way of creating safe environments, but then creating scenarios that soldiers have to deal with um, so that you can make sure that um, they are trained for certain scenarios. But then these things get ported over for consumer use and you see consumers, you can watch videos on YouTube of people just walking through these scenarios where they're just shooting everyone. Do we have a responsibility um, for what these users are, are using these things for? Um, I, we had some students put together a scenario in training for um, medical professionals who have to break bad news to people. And I sat through one of these experiences. It made me cry. I had to, I had to take it off. Um, and then the grad student had to offer me a hug afterwards. <laughs> but in this particular scenario, I had to tell the mother of a 12-year-old boy that her son had been killed Um, He had been hit by a car. She had brought him to the hospital. And it was my job to tell her that he had not survived. And all I had to do was read the words on the screen. And in the virtual reality, what I'm seeing is I'm sitting in an office and an actress comes in and is asking about her son. And I have to introduce myself as the doctor. And then I'm basically given a script But I am feeding off of her emotion, and it was so realistic to me that I had to remove myself. Um, And I actually talked to the students a little bit about offering a a heads up of some sort to the user about what they were going to experience. Of course, I was not the audience for this. The audience was for health professionals. But a Um, trigger warning. But it certainly triggered me um, as the mother of a 12-year-old child. I probably had – Uh, brought more baggage to it than some. But um, the ability to create that kind of emotion comes with responsibility. So things are moving so fast. And we talk often uh, on this podcast about how ethics and law trail technologies substantially. Um, But things are moving so fast that that we're in the next generation of storytelling or maybe two generations ahead uh, of where we actually are in the commercial world. What what do you know? What have you talked about with experts of of where we're going? So it's an interesting thing. Um, We are going towards more immersion, but we will never have – 
a high adoption rate, particularly with virtual reality, with the equipment we have. It's very expensive. In most cases, you're tethered to something. The so headset that exactly. tethers you to some you, box or you something. You have to be tethered to a computer at this point. Now, um, Oculus, which is a, a major manufacturer designer of virtual reality equipment now owned by Facebook, has just announced that they're releasing an untethered um, headset experience, which should change things. But to have VR in your home at this point, um, the technology just isn't quite there. The experiences, as, as is true of a lot of technology, when it first starts, you have, um, you have a couple of great experiences, and then you have a lot of mediocre experiences as people kind of try to figure out how to create this media. Um, and so I think although the potential is really exciting, we aren't quite there to capitalize on it. And I think there's honestly still a lot of fear around what this is capable of. If you if you read literature um, about people who are projecting what might happen with VR, um, my class studied the book Ready Player One. Um, it is not necessarily a rosy future where everyone becomes plugged into a device. And so I think there's a lot of talk about uh, social impact and ethics around virtual reality, as well as around the development of the equipment and how it can impact economy, how it can impact resources, things like that. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands. And this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud. To make it clear. Make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. So I've look at children now and my daughter's going to have a child and I see children in cribs with tablets. Mm -hmm. Is what you're talking about going to be satisfying to them? Because they've had a whole different technological experience than even your 12-year-old right. has had. I think we're going to start seeing technology kind of leapfrog um, grow at a faster, exponentially at a faster rate than it has even in the past 15 years. Um, which, you know, if you think about when the iPhone was released, um, what are we, about 10, 10 years out? 
that's just an amazing thing to think about how we're all kind of yeah, about 11 years but, right right, right that we're all um, connected to these smartphones in a way and in, in just 10 years how it's changed the world um, I think we're going to see more of that but I think we're also going to have to worry about making sure that this next generation that's coming up um, understands social impact, understands how to deal with people in real life, um, understands how to have a conversation about um, what this technology does for them, but what it also might take away so that we can have um, educated people thinking about issues surrounding technology. It's always been a dream of mine <laughs> and probably won't be fulfilled. But I've always thought I would love to sit down and have conversations with key historical figures um, that have had an impact on me, like Benjamin Franklin and his multifaceted life or um, FDR who inherited a country that was in – total dis disarray. I thought we might get there with holograms, and that still might be there, but the, the possibilities of having those kinds of educational experiences that are meaningful on a one-on-one -on -one basis seem to be sort of unlimited. Well, if you think about not just the – so you have to have this convergence of media for something like this to happen, right? You have to have the computing power to create really photorealistic graphics to make you believe that what you're seeing is real. Um, you have to have advanced artificial intelligence in order to make the um, computer – think the way that it needs to think. So for you to have... Think like Benjamin Franklin. Exactly. For you to have a conversation um, with FDR, someone has to create a computer program that would think like FDR so that it would answer correctly. Um, someone has to be able to create the graphics to make him look real. But there is a real downside to this as well. Who is going to police this? You know, you could make FDR say horrible, horrible things um, if you have the right skill. Um and who, who gets to say who owns the right to show us what FDR would say? And along with this, um, if you bring up the whole, you know, fake news thing, your ability to create um, a person, recreate a person, and make them say whatever you want um, could be a really scary thing. So there has to be kind of ethics and responsibility wrapped around that. The technology is going to get there. You know, we already have the ability to take someone's voice and um, make it say pretty much whatever we want to make it say. Right. That technology exists. Um, so to make someone look photorealistic and say what you want, um, it goes back to – so when you said that you could talk to anyone, my thought was Fred Astaire. I'm a big <laughs> fan of Fred Astaire. I would okay. love to have a conversation with him uh, or just watch him dance. But um, years ago, his image was – was sold to, was it Dirt Devil or Bissell or a vacuum company? And he danced with a vacuum cleaner on, oh, on an right. advertisement, right? And people were up in arms about this, that that his image had been sold for that and that that was possible. And that that's going to continue to happen. Um, as technology gets better and better, you can recreate anything. And we'll 
be able to take people out of their historical context and their historical era right. and put them in a different era, which will change them. Right. And context is important. Um, so this – and I don't mean to sound so gloom and doom. But, no, uh, no, um, no. But – a lot of what this technology can do is really exciting. The way that we can, um, you know, they're looking into remote surgery. So you could have a doctor in, in a different state who is the best doctor there is for whatever you're seeing a doctor for. And they could perform surgery on you using technology, VR, et cetera, from a different state. So the idea of, of what we could do with this is, is really exciting. But there are also ethical and, and moral and responsibility and all these issues that we need to keep in mind. Besides those, as, as a young professor, young educator, are you seeing any limits? Right now we have a lot of limits. But those limits are going to be um, inconsequential probably in the next 10, 15, 20 years. As computing power gets better, as what we're able to produce gets better. As AI gets better. As AI gets better, yes. I mean, we are at the brink of some great potential media. It's exciting. That's exciting, yeah. but it's also a, a bit scary it's for also some scary. of yes. <laughs> us traditionalists. But it, it, this is a good transition because – we're just coming off the holiday season, and I'm sure a lot of parents have a lot of children who they haven't seen since they <laughs> got some rec device. received their <laughs> device or their game or whatever. Um, you have a 12-year-old. You're pretty strict. Uh, talk, talk about, as a parent, how you might differ than as a researcher and educator. So I kind of think of myself as um, in the middle. So I'm not as strict as some people I know, but I'm certainly not as loose as some people I know. Um, my son is 12. Uh, we tried to keep him from screens until he was um, three. And, of course, he's 12, so that was nine years ago. So there was less screens to worry about, but in general um, – he got an iPad when he was seven, I think, and it was a hand-me-down. And we restrict what he's allowed to see on it. So we use parental controls on all of that. He got a cell phone this year for his birthday. Same thing, parental controls. He has screen time limits. Um, this is a hard thing to negotiate now because everything has a screen. So um, on weekends, he gets two hours of game time a day. He tends to like to divide them up, so he does an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. But getting him to understand that game time, he chooses to be on the computer or on our PlayStation or on our Switch or whatever console we're using. Um, but then he picks up his cell phone and plays games on it. And so we're continually having a conversation about um, screen time and what that means and what that takes you away from and being able to interact um, we were just on a trip in which several times I had to ask him to put his cell phone away and look around. But I make sure to, to explain why I'm telling him that. Um, we have a cell phone contract. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. Yeah, so this is something I found online that I modified. Um, and it has a, a series of rules for the cell phone. 
Um, and this is something that we will review each year and talk about. Um, but things like if I ask you for your cell phone, you give it to me. You are not allowed to have your cell phone in your room at night. Um, you can only text people who are in your um, contact list, and we have to agree to who's in your contact list. Um, and then other just, I think, general um, being a nice kid type rules. Like if your grandmother texts you, you have to text her back. Think, you know, right. things like that. Like Social rules. Yes, etiquette. be polite. <laughs> yes. Um, so we have those kind of rules. And those are things that we will um, adjust probably as he gets older. Um, we do not allow him to use social media at this point, which is um, a big argument point. He, his friends have Snapchat, and he would also like to have Snapchat. But um, where I fall on that is that their user agreement says you have to be 13, and he's not 13. So it's kind of an easy argument right now. Until he turns 13. Until six <laughs> months from yeah. now when he turns 13, and we'll have to have more discussions about it. Um, the only um, – I, and I don't know that you would really even call it social media, but the only social media platform that he has a login for is YouTube. And that's because he's allowed to post videos of um, himself after we agree to what the video is. So we have all these random videos of, for example, him playing piano with weird hats on. Um, and he likes to post those. Um, but we keep comments off and, and things like that. So we have lots of discussions about knowing who you're communicating with, being sure that that person is who they say they are. Um, so there's also a social media contract that I have saved and ready to go when he turns 13. So we'll see how that goes. And in, it seems like in, in as I was a parent, uh, our daughter would try to sneak out of the house and you would try to go to a party that she wasn't supposed to go to or, or things like that. Now all of that seems to be electronic. Yes. It's very true. Um, and so being able to gauge what he's doing on his phone or on his iPad, who he's communicating with, um, in part to keep him safe, um, but also to help educate him on the decisions that he needs to make because we're not always going to be able to watch. That's frightening yes. <laughs> as a parent. It probably has the potential to be even more frightening. Right. Thank you. So much. I, I, I'd really like to check in with you periodically as as technology advances, which means every couple of months. Right. Probably, now it's probably jumping so it's, quickly. It's lightning speed, but really appreciate your time. Thank you. Today, we've been talking about non-traditional and futuristic storytelling in a technological age with Beth Novak, Associate Professor of Media Arts and Studies in the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcasts or review them through your podcast outlet. 